episode 11 of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bagani, joined by Winnipeg Jets play-by-play, Dennis Bayak. Dennis, how are you doing today? Well, doing good, like everybody else, uh, keeping tabs on what's happening with the National Hockey League and all the latest news and, uh, and the other news, of course, as well, just to see how the world is doing. We are fortunate uh, here in Manitoba. Our uh, COVID numbers are very, very good. People here in this province have done a great job. So, But yeah, getting, uh, like everybody else, a little anxious to see what's going to happen with the National Hockey League. Uh, so first question, uh, who influenced you to get started with broadcasting? Boy, that goes back a long way. I've been in this uh, broadcasting business a long time. Uh, I always had a, I always loved radio. I loved radio, loved sports, uh, loved listening to play-by-play people, whoever I could pick up on our radio in rural Manitoba. And on uh, cold winter nights, uh, you actually got a lot of broadcasts that you could kind of tune into. And then uh, in high school, I was in drama, and uh, one of the uh, adjudicators uh, said, you have a very good voice for radio. Have you ever thought about that? And that kind of just spurred it on a little bit more. And, and it just kind of went from there and uh, went to radio school. By that time, it was still by correspondence, way more involved now in, in the broadcasting education process. But uh, uh, that got me started and uh, I got out of it for a while, got into junior hockey management and then uh, had the opportunity to get back into it in the National Hockey League. And uh, it's been a great run. So you said you went into junior hockey management. Uh, what was that experience like? I loved it. Uh, I was in Saskatoon, and uh, uh, I'm not sure if I needed a change or the interest was just too too good to turn down. Uh, I was in, I was doing play-by-play for the Saskatoon Blades. A friend of mine, Daryl Lubinicki, had taken over there. And uh, one day we were on the West Coast, and he said, let's go for a walk. And, and we went for a walk, and... And he said, would you ever think of coming on on board uh, with us and, and getting out of broadcasting? And uh, so we actually, it was the best of both worlds. I went to work for the hockey team, but I still stayed. Uh, eventually got back into the broadcast business, got out of it for a little while. And uh, just strictly was involved in, my title was assistant general manager, which included everything from marketing to sales to uh, whatever else, uh, arranging road trips, you know, all the little things that, that have to go on with a junior hockey team. And, uh, and then after uh, we opened up the new rink in Saskatoon and we had the Memorial Cup in 89, and I actually stayed working for the hockey team, but I went back to play-by-play. So I worked for the team, but, but still did the, uh, the broadcasts, and that got me back into the broadcast business. We had a terrific uh, Memorial Cup in Saskatoon in 1989 that, you know, I think was my, if there was one stepping stone or a jumping off point for me, uh, I I think that was kind of it. And it was a very good event. We had a lot, a lot of good people involved and, uh, and it just kind of went from there. But, uh, you know, I certainly enjoyed being involved in the Western Hockey League at a management level Uh, from Saskatoon. I went on to, Seattle, uh, became assistant general manager of the Seattle Thunderbirds, then became general manager of the Seattle Thunderbirds, uh, and then went on to Tri-Cities in the same capacity with the Tri-City Americans for a year, and then uh, things didn't go as well as I hoped there, more off the ice than on the ice, Uh, but that's a story for another day, that'll be in the book. 
And then uh, I had the opportunity to go to Edmonton and, and get into the National Hockey League in a play-by-play capacity at CFRN in Edmonton with the Oilers. Did that for a couple of years and then from there moved on to Toronto. But uh, I loved every minute in the Western Hockey League. And when I got out of junior hockey management, I kind of really missed it for, for quite a long time. And then eventually you just kind of move on. But uh, junior hockey will always be uh, very near and dear to me. What was that promotion like when you got promoted from assistant general manager to general manager of the Seattle Thunderbirds? Well, we had a long meeting and our general manager and coach Peter Anholt moved on and uh, Russ Farwell had been there before. And uh, we had a long opportunity to, to chat about it. Uh, the president, a uh, gentleman by the name of Russ Williams and I, and uh, we didn't rush into it. He just said, is this something that you want to do? And I said, absolutely. And uh, we talked about it. Uh, I thought about it, uh, talked about it with my wife, Bev. And, and there comes a time where uh, you have to make a decision. Either you're going to fish or you're going to cut bait. And uh, I thought, you know what, this was a good opportunity to uh, to do something different and uh, very much enjoyed it. I mean, it was a terrific junior hockey market. Uh, now we're all looking forward to Seattle being a, a National Hockey League market in the next couple of years. Uh, very much looking forward to that as well. But uh, you know what? It was busy, all the day-to-day stuff. Uh, it, it's a, a situation, Michael, where if things are going well, uh, as general manager of a junior team, you know you had a hand in it, along with all the good people that you have around you. If things aren't going well, you kind of get this little urge that it's up to me to fix this. And, uh, you know, it, it became very much a business from the time I actually started or was around the Western Hockey League to when I became general manager of the Seattle Thunderbirds. Things had changed so much. It really had become a big, big business uh, by this time. And we were drawing crowds. We played in two different buildings. One of our buildings was a smaller one, had about uh, 4,000 seats. And, and then we played half our schedule in, in the Coliseum where the basketball team at that time played. We're talking mid-90s now. And uh, we'd have 11, 12,000 people at our games. So it became very big business as, the, as junior hockey has and, and uh, has grown and grown to what it is today. But, uh, you know, uh, it was when I got the opportunity, I just thought, you know what, this is something that uh, when I got involved in hockey, this was something that, uh, that I wanted to look forward to. And the opportunity arose and I took it. General managers usually take the brunt of like uh, big moves when they don't pan out. Do you ever feel like the uh, weight on your shoulders was uh, heavy, even as an assistant general manager or even a general manager? Well, more the general manager, because the assistant general manager, you could always point the finger at the general manager and say he had the final call. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when, you're, when you're the general manager, you you're in the big office and uh yeah, there was there was trades we made that turned out very well, and there was deals we made that uh, that didn't turn out very well. Some had different reasons as to why we did or didn't do them. Uh, you know, the recruiting end of it was very big. Where you you know, especially when we were in Seattle and then even in Tri Cities, uh, you know, you're going and and talking to a a young man. I'll, I'll reference Brendan Witt, uh, who had a great career in the National Hockey League, 16 years of age, Humboldt, Saskatchewan. And we go in there and try and convince him to, you know, to come to Seattle. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of look the parents in the eye and, and say, yes, we're going to take care of your son and we're going to make sure he gets his education and, and all the other stuff that, uh, that comes with it. So uh, there is pressure on all sorts of it. But you know what? I think we all internally enjoy pressure. And, uh, and that was certainly the case there. And, but, yeah, the trades are always interesting because you're dealing with 
And this was always something you had to be careful of. You're dealing with school-aged players. And, uh, you know, you tried to make it so that if you were going to make a player trade, it was going to be around the semester break. So you really weren't messing up with their school. We were dealing with American schools, uh, Canadian players in, in a lot of cases. So there was a lot of challenges. We tried to get into the U.S. market a little bit. And, and we were successful getting some players, uh, U.S. born players to come and play for us. Uh, in Seattle, and that worked out well. But uh, lots, lots of challenges—not just what you see on the ice, but certainly what happens behind the scenes. Now, lots of people have been watching Tiger King, among other hit TV shows. Uh, what have you been doing during quarantine? Well, I did watch Tiger King as as much as uh, I wasn't sure I was going to. There was just so much talk about it that uh, that I figured, well, I better have a look at this and see what's going on. But uh, we, you know, we try to we try to stay away from from watching television during the day, and we do. Uh, unless it's a sporting event, uh, you know, there's some sporting events have got going again, or there's been some replays uh, during the course of a day where you'll tape from the night before and you'll watch that. But as far as watching, binge watching or whatever, we try and keep that to the evening. And and there has been some binge watching, there's no doubt. Uh, you know, we've watched everything from some lighter stuff, uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be continued if they can ever get back to recording and taping uh to me that was a terrific series uh the man of the high castle was a little bit different uh harry bosch was a detective series uh i watched waco i i very much enjoy uh documentaries or movies that are based on true stories and uh, i was in seattle when when waco happened and ruby ridge happened and uh you know so i was a little closer to it than maybe some people were so uh, that, uh, you know, we're now, we watch Schitt's Creek, uh, which was a really good, uh, for, you know, Canadian series, so to speak. Uh, you know, and now we're into, uh, Frankie and Grace and, and, and some other stuff, but, uh, we've kind of run the gambit here of, uh, Last Dance, obviously. Uh, I had a, I took a, I did some binge watching of that. I think I went four, two, two, two to get that done. And, uh, and that was very interesting, very enlightening. And, and you just realize, even though you, we all kind of watch Michael Jordan play, just what a great athlete he was. But uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing I watched a lot of the same stuff that maybe a lot of other people have watched. But uh, certainly uh, Tiger King would go down as, as maybe the, uh, the, the, the most different uh, TV series we watched. It is quite a strange TV series, to say the least, in my opinion. You know, one that was just out of the world. Well, the fact that it was the actual people involved. Again, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, my my love for, for true stories. Well, this one was the true story with the actual people involved. And, and you know, we always know there's a license that, that goes along and maybe some things are, are changed a little bit. But for the most part, this was the people that that were involved in this. And uh, anytime that happens, uh, I think that kind of makes it makes it interesting. And, uh, you know, once you get past the initial thought of it, and boy, there's some different people in this one, uh, it's, it's still about their life, their day-to-day -day life. And, uh, you know, you talk to people who have been to some of those parks and, and you know, watch the, the Tigers go to work and, and, uh, and that. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. What prior experience did you have that set you up for your success today? Well, I guess just like every everybody else, you start off in a small market. Uh, I went to Flin Flon uh, and started my career there. 
uh, did a couple of years there, and then you know, uh, touch wood, I was I was fortunate. Uh, from there, I got a call to go to Saskatoon. Uh, the person that was general manager and coach of the Victoria Cougars, a gentleman by the name of Patty Ganell, who has since passed, uh, moved to Victoria while I went to Saskatoon. Called me and said, "Hey, would you come out to Victoria?" So I went out there and then uh, was coming back through Saskatoon. There was an, an opening there back at CFQC Radio and Television. I uh, had the opportunity to get back into that, so I did. Uh, and then the opportunities just kind of went from there. But, uh, you know, basically like everybody else, you started off doing play-by-play for the Flint Flon Bombers, uh, went on to the Saskatoon Blades, onto the Victoria Cougars, back to the Saskatoon Blades. And, and uh, through it all, I guess you – you kind of hope that one day you'll have the opportunity to, to get to the National Hockey League. And I was fortunate enough uh, that I did. I mentioned I grew up in rural Manitoba and, uh, you know, we played ball hockey and I was the goaltender and the play-by-play guy. And uh, maybe that's where it all got going. But I watched every chance I had. I mean, you watch hockey night in Canada, you listen to the Sunday night games, uh, the Foster Hewitts of the world, uh, you know, the, the, the Hewitts, the Danny Gallimans, you grow up with these people, you know, uh, Bob Cole eventually and, and everybody else that came along the way. And you, you still try and form your own style and, and that. But, you know, I guess it, it goes back to where we started. It really goes back to my, to my love of the game of hockey. And, uh, and I really enjoyed radio and I really enjoyed play-by-play. What were some of the bumps in the road that you encountered and how did you overcome those obstacles? Well, you know what? I don't, again, I kind of looked at everything as a challenge. I guess one of the, I mean, the moves to me were easy. I always was never one to, to sit and say, well, geez, we're going to have to pack up and move. And, and for the most part of it, at the start, I was single. So really it was just throw everything into your car and turn left and away you go. Uh, you know, so the, the early part of it was easy. Even, you know, going to Northern Manitoba to Flint Flon was easy um, you know, from there going to Saskatoon was easy and so on down the line, even going to Victoria, excuse me, <clears throat> even going to Victoria, which, you know, was a long ways away for a young kid from Manitoba, but, uh, away we went and, uh, and it was all good. I guess the first real challenge would have been when I had the opportunity to go work for the Saskatoon Blades, where now I had to make the decision I'm getting out of radio and television and I'm going to work for a hockey team. So, I guess that would have been one of the first challenges that, uh, and yet it really wasn't to, to me. I always just kind of went with whatever felt right. And uh, that felt right at the time. And then away I went, you know, and then I guess the next big move, because by now I was, I was married, uh, living in Saskatoon, very comfortable with a very good organization in Saskatoon, a terrific city. And I had the opportunity to go to Seattle. So now that that bent my wife quitting her job, uh, leaving Canada, going to the United States. So there was all those challenges that had to, you know, be overcome. But really, I look back at them now, and there really wasn't anything that uh, that I would look back. Never have I done anything that I would look back and say, I wish I hadn't done that. Uh, you know, so I have been fortunate. And then I guess the next biggest thing would have come when, uh, when I got let go in Tri-Cities. Uh, you know, the... The owner of the team and I had a bit of a, a difference of opinion on how things were going to get get done. We had a terrific year on the ice, and uh, but that happens in business. That happens, and and it's the old adage, Michael, uh, you're young and you'll have some of these challenges later. Of, of it's not what happens to you, it's how you handle what happens to you. And 
And uh, I got let go and, and uh, just realized, hey, that's part of the business. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I guess a couple of months later, I get the opportunity to go and do what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid. And that was become a play-by-play announcer in the National Hockey League. And I got uh, hired by CFRN in Edmonton. So uh, it, it's what you make of the opportunity. And, uh, you know, what seemed like a dark day when I got let go in Tri-Cities three months later was something that I dreamed of as a kid uh, doing play-by-play in the National Hockey League. Uh, CFRN lost the rights in Edmonton. And the next thing you know, I got a call to go to Toronto and do Toronto Maple Leaf radio for, for all the years that I did. So uh, as one door closes, another one opens. And, I, and I, you know, I mean, the only challenges, you know, again, and everybody goes through this as you get older, are personal challenges with family members passing on, parents passing on, and those sorts of things. But really from a career standpoint, I don't know if I, if I can look back as I, near, as I near the end of my ride here, I'm not sure there's anything I can look back at and say this was really a major obstacle. Well, that's good. You know, like you, you seem like you uh, always put yourself in the right position. You always, uh, you know, liked what you did, which is uh, very important for someone who uh, wants to get into journalism. Well, it is. And that's, I think, number one. I mean, you know, again, not to be Mr. Cliche here, but there is that the saying that when I when I got this job, I knew that that I would, you know, it was not it wasn't even like going to work. And really, that's that's kind of where we are. We get to watch hockey games. That's not a bad job. And uh, yes, there's work that's involved in preparing for it. And as much as the travel is is appears glamorous, you know, there's road trips where you get into your third and fourth night where you're landing in a different city at two o'clock in the morning where, you know, eventually those days kind of catch up to you, but uh, never to the point where uh, that I would, you know, look back at it and say, I wish I hadn't done that. And, and uh, you know, I was at the right place at the right time uh, for, for a few of the opportunities that arose. And, and I think when you keep a positive attitude, uh, I think good things are going to happen. So that's kind of the way I looked at things. Now, with the Jets re- or with the Thrashers relocating to Winnipeg, uh, is that when your opportunity rose to commentate for the Jets? Yeah, I was in Toronto. I was doing a Toronto Maple Leaf radio, uh, and then I was also doing some stuff for TSN, and that's where you know whether it would be uh, the Telus Cup. Uh, they had the Thursday night double headers. Uh, Ryan Walter and I did some of those, so I would flip from radio. In Toronto to television for some of those games. Uh, I did a couple playoff series for TSN when they still had, uh, when they were doing national playoff series. Uh, you know, so that got me into the TSN door. And then, uh, so I knew some people there. And then, as it, strange as it was, uh, being from Manitoba, I was born and raised in this province, uh, we were passing through a couple of weeks or maybe a week before the big announcements. So all these little rumors were out there. And, and uh, you know, then Darren Dreger was maybe one of the first here, Bob McKenzie, that kind of had leaked that, hey, this is this might be happening. But uh, I'll sidetrack for a bit. The Winnipeg Jets, True North here, did an absolutely remarkable job of keeping this very, very quiet. They didn't want anything to get out until all the, the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, and they did that. So we're passing through Winnipeg, and... I got talking to someone from from one of the radio stations here, uh, just talking generally about what a broadcast would look like, what it should sound like, 
uh, all some of the intricacies and things like that. And then off I went to our summer place in Kelowna. We've had a summer place in Kelowna since my days in Toronto. So now we get to Kelowna. Now I'm watching what's going on there. And now it's starting to pick up. It's starting to steamroll about uh, the, the Atlanta Thrashers moving to Winnipeg. And then, of course, I sat there. And as I watched on that day when the announcement came and they're dancing in the streets in Winnipeg, you know, again, being from the province and, and having lived in Winnipeg, you're, you start to think, wow, that's pretty exciting. You know, and then things kind of died down a little bit. And uh, we were on our way down to uh, Washington State to visit friends. And I got a call from TSN saying, look, uh, we think we're going to get the rights for the Winnipeg Jets. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and Paul Graham from TSN said, okay, let just leave it with us for a while. We've got some things to sort out and we'll kind of go from there. And it started off that it was going to be just the television was going to be with TSN. Uh, although there was a TSN radio station in Winnipeg that was just starting up. And the next thing you know, the whole thing kind of came together and, and it went from there. But there was never, uh, you know, when the opportunity came, there was, and there were some things changing in Toronto as well. Uh, the rights, you know, they weren't sure where the radio rights were going to go, what was going to happen with everything. Uh, so again, the opportunity, the opportunity and the timing uh, was perfect uh, and it all came to fruition and uh, next thing you know we're, we're moving to Winnipeg and it's been an absolutely terrific move. Uh, I mean I couldn't I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity. What's it like having the whiteout in the playoffs? Well it's exciting the entire I mean you know what it's like in, in Canada with hockey and, and real good hockey markets you get to the playoffs and, and that's that's it. I mean, the legendary and the late great Pat Quinn uh, always said when you could walk down the street in Toronto and you could tell whether the Leafs won or lost last night. Uh, if people were smiling, they won. If they were frowning, they lost. And, and that's what it's like in Winnipeg. When you get to the playoffs, I mean, everybody. We've seen the whiteouts. We've seen the street parties uh, and everything else that goes along with it. And, and this city loves its team. Uh, and, and it's an exciting team, uh, and, you know, springtime has rolled around by the time the playoffs get going. The weather's a little bit better. People are happy, and, and uh, I mean, that run a couple of years ago was, was absolutely magnificent. I mean, last year ended a little bit quicker, and we'll see what happens with this year. Uh, you know, they were on a, on a nice little run when the pause came in, so we'll see what happens with that, but Certainly, that'll always be, uh, I mean, from a hockey standpoint, from a National Hockey League standpoint, uh, a couple of highlights. One, I was in with Edmonton, uh, with the Oilers, doing their games. We didn't do the game because it was a playoff game, and uh, we didn't have the, the, the playoff rights. When Todd Mar when uh, Marchant scored the overtime goal in Dallas to advance the Oilers on to the Colorado Avalanche series, that was one of the most exciting series and one of the most exciting games. Uh, you know, after that, it'll be the 2018 run here that the Winnipeg Jets had. I mean, that playoff run was was absolutely terrific. And, and uh, the game seven in Nashville, uh, you know, is is something that you'll just never forget. The atmosphere in that building in Nashville, the atmosphere in the previous games. I mean, it was a crazy series. Neither team seemed to be able to win at home on a regular basis, uh, you know, on that. But the city was just so wired up uh you know they had a chance to win the series in games in game six and if that was going to be the case that would have given them some rest uh they didn't win here in game six in winnipeg went to game seven and then 
I think that took a lot out of them. And even though they won game one against Vegas, they just seemed to run out of gas, you know, after that. And the Vegas Golden Knights, who were having a nice little run of their own, went on to win the series. But, uh, I mean, this city, this city, the Whiteouts are legendary, and uh, they will continue to be legendary as long as this team is here. So take me through a typical game day. What's it like for you? Well, you go, you get up. You, I mean, I'm a bit of an early riser on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, my day normally gets up. I'll take Sports Center, uh, you know, from the night before and uh, get up in the morning and uh, make a cup of coffee and, and come into my office and, and go through that, uh, get caught up on, on everything that happened around the National Hockey League, do your normal reading, see what's new on Twitter, uh, you know, what, what else is going on around the National Hockey League. Uh, I live fairly close to the rink here in Winnipeg. So then you go down for the morning skate. Uh, sometimes both teams skate, sometimes one team skates, sometimes none, neither team skates. So it, that varies from day to day. But on a regular day, both teams skate. Then I'm back home. We do some, we do some internal stuff, uh, in-house stuff for the big screen. We do some of that uh, at the rink after we're done our meetings with the coaches and the players. We do get, a, as broadcasters, we get a meeting with head coach Paul Maurice uh, every game day, which is very informative. Uh, you know, Kevin Sawyer and I from the TV side, Ryan Munz, Paul Edmonds from the radio side. And, and uh, you, get, you get to ask some questions that you normally wouldn't ask in a scrum or in a general media avail as to kind of what systems are. And Paul Maurice is terrific with us. I mean, to the point where he'll show us video. Here's what I showed the players today. This is what we're trying to do against this line. This is what we're trying to do against that line. So you have an idea when you go into the game. So from there, I'm normally home by around 1 o'clock. Uh, and then you just get back to finishing off your... But I have a philosophy. My belief is the night before the game, if all of a sudden you got a phone call and said, this game is going to be played in an hour, then I'm ready. If you worry, I realize you have back-to-backs and sometimes that's impossible, but that's kind of been my belief where if we're on a road game, I try to get as much work done as I can the day before on the flight in on that same theory that if we get to St. Louis and we get off the airplane and they say this game is going to be played in an hour, that I'm ready. So I try to, you know, and then when you get back in the afternoon of the game, you just try and finalize, just go over some of the more important parts, gather all the information that you got from the rink that morning and try and figure out what's more important. And this needs to get talked about this if we have time and, and those sorts of things. And then I'm back at the rink normally by around four o'clock in the afternoon for a seven o'clock game and uh, have a bite to eat. And then uh, I like to be in my booth by, uh, by five o'clock, two hours before game time and and then just start to, to kind of focus in on, on that game at hand and uh, what we're going to do on our pregame show. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about all that in the morning. Then we'll get a script in the afternoon. And then you just kind of go over that script to make sure you know exactly what the producer is thinking. And, uh, you know, that's the advantages from a television standpoint is you have a producer that, you know, kind of leads you and directs you as to, as to which way you're going. Uh, I do 60 television games. I also do 22 radio games. Love radio, uh, but certainly you're more your own boss on radio where you can kind of dictate which way you want to go. But uh, that's a normal day. And then uh, the game ends, and, and I'm not one to rush home. I kind of like hang around the rink, listen to the coaches' news conference, and, and wait, let the traffic go by a little bit. And then, uh, again, luckily, I'm, I'm like about a five-minute drive from the rink. So, 
so I'm very fortunate and and uh, come home relax a little bit and a lot of times uh, when I come home you'll turn on watch some Western Conference games uh, and on, on a, so that's a game day on an off night uh, I'll be doing some work but at the same time I'll have uh, my television going I'll have my computer going and at times I'll have uh, three games going at the same time just kind of trying to get an idea of what's going on but I try and limit it to two three gets a little too confusing uh, but I but you just want to see what's going on around the league again and you do when you've got the St. Louis Blues coming in you try and watch a couple of their games before they come in here just to kind of get an idea of what they're doing so yeah but all fun you get the opportunity to work the World Juniors Tournament. How is that experience? Well, terrific. You know what? Uh, uh, I mean, I'll you know uh, probably get accused here of being too nice to TSN, but they've been uh, Paul Graham and the people at TSN have been have been very good to me. I've had so many great opportunities to do things that uh, when I was doing the play-by-play of the ball hockey when I was uh, 13 years of age. Uh, out in rural Manitoba, up by Winnipegosis, uh, I never would have dreamed that, that I would have the opportunities that, that I've had. And I've had the opportunity to do World Juniors. I've had the opportunity to do World Championship games. Uh, and it's been, it's been terrific. The, the great thing with the, with, the, with the World Junior Championship is, is you get to see these players as young guys. And then you see them make that next step to the National Hockey League. And, and the one that jumps out here, uh, just because of how it played itself out, was the 2016 World Championship in Finland. Uh, Finland had this terrific line of Aho Pugliarvi and Patrick Lining. And, I mean, the games there were electric. The building was full. And uh, they loved their hockey over there as much as we love it over here. And then, lo and behold, uh, in the not-too-distant future, Patrick Liney becomes a member of the Winnipeg Jets. So, I mean, that kind of brings it to home when you, when, you, when you talk about watching these young players evolve into NHL players. That's the one that kind of jumps out. But, you know, I had the opportunity to see some great cities, uh, opportunity to see some great hockey, and the opportunity, Michael, to meet so many good people. And when all is said and done... Uh, that's what this to me is really all about is the people that you meet along the way. And, uh, you know, it's great to go back to the world championship, even though you only see those people once a year, uh, you're with them basically for three weeks, whether it be in, in the Czech Republic, whether it be in Slovakia, whatever, Germany, whatever the case may be. And, uh, it, it's, we do a lot of games, uh, as you know, TSN does all the games, so there's five games or five or six days where we do three games a day. So you're at the rink from 10 o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. Uh, but you know that going in, you prepare yourself and, and it's a matter of one game finishes and you take your game notes and you stuff them into your briefcase and you pull out the next two teams and, and, and you just kind of go from there. But uh, the opportunity to travel, the opportunity to see cities, to see hockey games, to meet people on an international scale, whether it be the World Junior or whether it be the World Championship, uh, has been another highlight of, of my life, no doubt. Does having Craig Bunn, who's the TSN Director of Scouting, help with some of the background for the prospects? Oh, huge, especially at the, at the, for, for the junior level. I mean, my job at the World Junior becomes quite simple. Just when the puck drops, you worry about the play-by-play because there isn't a player on the ice that Craig Button doesn't know. 
And so I never have to worry about, oh boy, I don't know this, uh, I don't know much about this number 33 from, from Russia here, because Craig Button does. So that, that makes it very easy. And, and there then becomes the comfort level of, of, then you know that all you have to worry about is the play-by-play -play. when it comes to the analyzing of the game, when it comes to the analysis of the players, he's got that covered. And, uh, and the contacts that he has, uh, and I just ride his coattails, uh, will be at, in Czech Republic and he'll run into somebody in the hallway and we'll have a conversation about that game that night. And so I pick things up. Well, we're going to try and do the coach will say, well, we're going to try and do this. We're going to try and do that. So that helps me. And then that's just all because of the contacts and, and what he does, uh, for TSN. How do you stay up to date with how Canada does since you're always calling games for the other group? Well, that's the challenge. Yeah, because then you come back on our radio station here and of course they want to talk about Canada. So you have to preface anything by, hey, I just, I watched half of this game. Uh, I watched one period of this game. And, and then other than that, now social media has made it a bit easier. Uh, Ray Ferraro is, and Gord Miller are doing the Canadian games and they're always tweeting information out and what happened here, what happened there. So that does make it easier. Uh, at least you have, you kind of get an idea of what happened. And then there's, there's a buzz in the building. Like a lot of times the games are offset between periods. We'll have a monitor there. We'll just flip the monitor over to the Canadian game uh, and we'll watch some of that. So you kind of, you, you get to see them. You still have this interest last year in the Czech Republic. The Canadian team was in the same hotel as we were. Uh, so there was even a little bit more of a, of a relationship there. Uh, but you watch what they're doing because you, you're Canadian. You have this interest. And and uh, so you watch as much as you can, but not to the point where where you lose sight of the fact that you have this other game to do. Uh, you're responsible for doing United States versus Sweden tonight. Don't lose sight of that fact that you have a broadcast to do. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think as the, as the years go by, you kind of, develop a format uh, of, of what you're going to do on this day, how much of this game you can watch, how prepared are you, uh, you know, and, and those sorts of things. And, and again, it's just all experience, but there's no, there's no doubt. You, you, you pay attention as best you can to what Canada's doing. Line A popped off against the Blues uh, with five goals. What was your reaction when he scored that many? Well, you know, it's crazy. There's a, uh, a contest on, uh, on our radio station, or we had, uh, it's still on the television side. It's not on the radio side anymore. Uh, and it wasn't one of our TV games. It was a, it was a national game. So uh, it, it still happened. They maybe didn't quite get the, you know, the publicity that they would have had it been a regional broadcast for us. But, uh, and a fan won a million dollars. So that you had that sidebar. We had a game here a few years ago against Florida. Matthew Perot had four games. And we had a, a lady in Brandon, uh, one more goal, and she would have won a million dollars. And that didn't happen. Of course, Perot said after the game, had I known that, uh, you know, I would have maybe, uh, and he had a breakaway in the third period. He says, I maybe would have tried something different. And then Al Montoya, who was the goaltender for Florida at that point, who at one time was in Winnipeg, said, geez, if I'd have known that, I'd have let it in. So, you know, <laughs> side stories. But uh, there was no doubt the game in, in St. Louis where Patrick Laine got five. I mean, it was a, just one of those games. And I think if you look back, Michael, to maybe what turned the St. Louis Blues season around a little bit might have been that game 
I think they became a much, much better defensive team after that. And uh, we all know the success that, that they had. But certainly uh, watching anybody. But Patrick Line is one of those players that every time he gets ready to shoot the puck, there's, a, there's this little pause in your brain that says this, this has a real good chance of going in. And there's not a lot of players around the National Hockey League that that, that happens with, but uh, he certainly falls into that category. Now, this past All-Star Game, child, player, and puck tracking, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm too much of a traditionalist. Uh, I, th- I think the game is fine the way it is. I understand. I'm not being critical here. I understand that innovation and things change, and we have to do things to uh, to keep the game fresh and keep the game exciting and everything else. But uh, I'm still a traditionalist. Uh, I'm okay with a real good 2-1 game uh, versus a bad 6-4 game uh, and that. But uh, they'll try things. I mean, anything that attracts new fans, uh, I think, is what the idea is. Uh, and you can simply look at it from a generating revenue standpoint. But I, I just think that uh, the game has evolved when you go to a world championship and you see fans from all over the world and they'll come up to you and they'll talk to you about Patrick Laine's five goals and they'll talk to you about a game that happened uh, between Winnipeg and Chicago. They'll talk about Jonathan Taves in that game. So they watch the National Hockey League. The National Hockey League is far more global. I mean, the Jets went to Finland to play a couple games against Florida a couple of years ago. So you realize it there as well. But uh this is very much a global game now, and if you can attract new fans, whether it be Canada, U.S., anywhere around the world, and I think that's the idea of some of the innovations that they're trying. Now, when you get time to uh, talk with the players, how important is that? Is it building the relationship off camera? Well, it is. Uh, you know, and again, you have your certain players that uh, that you go to. You always. Try and find if you can find something out about a player that uh, that maybe somebody else doesn't know. That's an interesting tie-in. Uh, just little things, you know, like when you know uh, Dave Lowry coached in Los Angeles. Adam Lowry going to play against his dad. Hey, what was that like? You know, growing up with with your dad an NHL player. Oh, some of the stuff is is fairly general, uh, but you will try and uh, and there's certain players you'll go to if you want to. And this is more Kevin Sawyer, who has a great relationship, my our analyst on TSN, who has a great relationship with the players as well. Uh, okay, you're going to go up against Steven Stamkos tonight. You're going to go up against Jonathan Taves tonight. What are you looking to do? Uh, you know, and just whether it be a forward, whether it be a defenseman, but uh, just try to get an idea of, of what's going uh, through their mind. I mean, we see a player have a bad shift or a bad game. You don't know what's happening with that player. Was he not feeling well? Uh, there's lots of reasons where some nights players just don't have it. And uh, I think anytime you can get, uh, I, I find practice days better than game days to to try and get uh, into a conversation with players, uh, just simply because there's not as much media around and it's a smaller smaller gathering. And and I think you can. Uh, but every once in a while, something will pop into your mind saying, geez, I'm, I'm going to have to ask Josh Morrissey that and, uh, and that. But you, you try just so there's this trust that uh, they know they can tell you something that if they're not feeling good that day, they can tell you and it's not going to get into the wrong hands or be told the wrong way. So you do have to build this trust. Do you ever think the players, like you said, uh, you know, some players uh, 
you know, with practicing, there's the smoke gathering. Uh, do you think players get annoyed by the media at all? Yeah, I think so. Uh, just because it's, I'll go, I'll go back a little bit. When I was in Edmonton, Curtis Joseph was uh, in Edmonton. And you had the same, at practice, you had the same five or six media people there every day. And you just got to know everybody. Then Curtis Joseph went to Toronto. And when he came to Toronto, I was already there. And I remember after one of the first game day scrums, he said, is this always like this? And I said, yes, it is. Uh, where you now had 30 people uh, around your stall after a skate uh, wanting to talk to you. So uh, I, I don't know if they get annoyed as much. And here's, the, it's, it's just, it's part of the way things have evolved. You don't, people want different stories now. They don't just want the simple, you're playing the Chicago Blackhawks tonight, what do you expect? You know, the fans deserve more, media tries to get more. So they, they don't just ask those, those easy questions. There's other questions that come up. And, and I think there's a time and a place to ask non-game related questions. To me, I don't believe that's the morning of a game, but that's just me. Uh, and I understand that there's lots of media that aren't going to come to practice. They're just going to be there for the morning skate and for the game. So they have a story that they want to write or they want to tell, and they're going to ask some questions. So that's where some of the scrums go from, from maybe three, four minutes to seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. Some players are fine with it, and some players aren't. I really think that varies from player to player. I think some accept the fact that that's part of it now. The other ones know it's part of it, but have a tougher time accepting it. So I really do think that varies from player to player. Uh, some players, we, we, we all have done this. Uh, we've all asked a stupid question. I've done it. Uh, and as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you're saying, why did I ask that? Some players handle that better than other players do. You know, with the NHL and local media outlets, they've been replaying past games. Are you getting bored of those reruns? No, not really. Uh, I, I watch them. I don't watch them intently, uh, but I do watch them. And as much as uh, you notice that the game has changed, uh, I, I look more at the other stuff, especially if you go way back. I look back at, uh, the you know, the, not as much advertising on the ice. And, and uh, I mean, I remember the days when there was no advertising on the rink boards, but that's, you know, that's, that's going back a long way. But the game certainly has evolved. Uh, you go back and you, you know, you'll watch a game and you'll time somebody's shift and, and you'll time it out at a minute and 22 seconds. And that would never happen in today's game. In today's game, if you're over 50 seconds, you've got a coach barking at you saying, get off the ice. But just the equipment change, uh, the way the game has changed. I think it's so fast right now. I think the game is in a very good place right now. I watch those games more for... Uh, the players and the people that over the years I've crossed paths with some, I know better than others uh, and just kind of say, wow, you know, I wonder where he is now. I wonder what this person is doing now, but uh, I think it's still nice to go back and, and it's history. It's, it's what has grown our game to what it is today. And uh, in stoppages like this, when we're just looking for games to watch, uh, we're going to watch it. It's there and, and uh, we're going to watch it. Uh, TSN ran the Canada cup from 87 here. Uh, a couple of weeks back, and, and uh, you know, I watched the majority of that. 
and uh, it was so exciting, and uh, the game was so good. So many frontline players uh, from both teams, and uh, and that. But uh, you know what? Uh, I think in times like this, uh, you have to put some games on, and, and people will say, "I remember where I watched this game," and uh, you know the Oiler Philadelphia series was was legendary, and uh, so yeah, lots of uh, lots of games to watch, and and again, I don't watch them as intently as as probably some people do, but I still do watch them. Are you a fan of the 2014 playoff format? I'm a, I'm you know, a fan of the 24 teams. I'm not totally sold on the format. Uh, and again, I'm going to preface this by people who are way better at this than I am, have spent a way more time at doing this than I have. Uh, so I'm not being critical of, of what they decided because they have very legitimate reasons as to why they've gone this route. And I know there's been a couple of teams, the Tampa Bay Lightning being one, uh, Alex Kalorn has come out and, and saying they're not a big fan of the format as well. So I, I think there's lots of players that maybe aren't uh, 100% sold on it. I like the one that was out there about a week ago uh, that involved a round robin. Uh, where you had six teams, four pools, and you played everybody once. So you played five games kind of as a tune-up game. It still meant something, but if you were one of the better teams, you then had the option where you could play your star players three of those five games, maybe four of those five games. If you're one of those teams that in a must-win situation, you put yourself in that situation in the games that were played before the pause. And if you have to play your frontline players uh, all five games, that's the way it is. That's the situation you put yourself in. And then from there, uh, I would have liked a, a quick series, sudden death between the three bottom teams In after those games. You eliminate two, and then you've got four teams. You're back to 16 teams, and away you go. That That's that's kind of the format that I would have liked. And, and I know the other side of that is somebody said, well, if you're a team that needs every win and you lose your first two games of the five, then what? Well, that's no different than playing the last three games of the regular season that don't mean anything. But again, uh, I guarantee you that there is very, very legitimate reasons as to why they've done it this way. And, and I think the bottom line is just to get hockey back. Even even for the better teams, Michael, the, the teams that, and this is where Alex Kalorn was going with this, even the top teams that are kind of going to play in this little round robin, their intensity level is going to be different than the teams that are playing a best of seven or a best of five. And then the other side of it to me that comes in, to bring a player from Europe, travel back to North America, in some places you're going to have to self-quarantine for two weeks, Uh and then in some cases, you're going to go to training camp. Then after that, then you're going to get tested. Then you're going to travel to a hub city and you could play your first three games in four days and be eliminated three straight. And you've done all this preparation. And in three games, four days, you're done. Your season's over and you're going back home. So that, that was the other side of it. I just thought with this, everybody playing in this round robin, getting, getting five games in, uh, and then advancing after that, I just thought that was that was just my feeling. But again, uh, I'm not being sitting here and, and questioning the decisions that were made because those people put a lot of work and a lot of process and a lot of thought into this process. 
So the Jets would be lined up with the Flames for the play-in series, uh, best of five. Do you ever think that the Flames would be able to pitch their home arena for a hub city? Well, you know what? Alberta's one of the one of the cities that, uh, and Cal, not Alberta as a province. Cal, I'll, I'll narrow this down. Calgary and area. That area is having a little bit more of a of a challenge here, nailing nailing some things down here to get their numbers down. Uh, that area of Western Canada is still one that every day those numbers seem to climb a little bit. Uh, we're fortunate here in Manitoba. Uh, the numbers here are terrific. Uh, we've flattened that curve right down to a pancake. Uh, Saskatchewan is, is pretty good. BC is making some progress. Alberta's made progress, but that Calgary area still seems to be uh, a, a bit of a concern. I, I do understand the the hub city format that they're going to, and I agree with it. Uh, it's going to be much easier to try and control things when you have everybody there. You're going to have medical people. You're going to have basically a hotel that's reserved strictly for NHL people. Uh, so that that makes a lot more sense. Uh, you know, I mean, both cities would love to look. I mean, there's questions here in Winnipeg, Michael. People are asking why aren't they coming here? Uh, I think in seven of the last 10 days or eight of the last 11 days, we've had no new cases here. Uh, I mean, we're down to under 20 cases in the entire province. And, uh, you know, but I just don't know if we have the amenities. Some people are saying, no, we don't want to bring people in here for simply from a selfish standpoint. Uh, you know, but, but you need hotel space. We're talking, if you're going to bring 12 teams in, you're talking, and then some NHL people, you're talking about a lot of hotel space, and I think if they can limit this to one or two hotels, uh, you know, I think that makes it advantageous because you're dealing with hotel staff on this too. Uh, you know, whether it be the servers, whether it be the cleaners, the bartenders, the front the front desk people, whoever it may be, you're dealing with hotel people as well here. So, uh, so I understand that as much as I think people in Calgary would love to have that home ice advantage against the Winnipeg Jets, uh, that's probably not going to happen. Well, not only are like hotels uh, for the players, but for they are for the arena stuff as well. Like you probably have to put the Zamboni driver, the uh, people who clean the ice during the intermissions, all of those people. Well, that's the, still some of the questions that I guess will be answered uh, eventually. Uh, that's one of the questions that a lot of people have, me included, you included, is what happens to the hotel staff. I mean, we hear that players won't be showering at the rink. Uh, because it just would be too much of a challenge to disinfect the shower on a on a day to day or a game to game basis, you know, where players might have to go back to the hotel and shower there. And I think they're okay with that. You're probably not going to get your room cleaned every day, uh, and that's fine with me anyway. That's fine with me as well. Uh, I don't need my room cleaned every day, uh, you know. So there's going to be some changes, but that's that's a good point. What happens? To the cleaners at the hotel, do they do they stay in the hotel? Or are they going to be allowed to go home? Are they going to get tested every day before they come into work? Uh, same as the people that are serving the meals, and and on and on it goes. But uh, again, that's been discussed at the NHL level, the NHLPA level, and uh, I'm sure they have it well under control. The Jets and Flames did face up uh, against each other in this year's Heritage Classic. How fun was that? Well, it was, and, and actually, when the Jets' season came to a pause, we were in Calgary. They had come off the win in Edmonton. We flew to Calgary after the game. 
we had a couple days off in Calgary before we played the Flames, and then we were going on to Vancouver from there, uh, and that's when the whole thing came to a pause. So we got up in the morning in Calgary, and we were told to pack our stuff, and, and we're going back to Winnipeg. And uh, we were in Edmonton the night before, and we kind of, when the NBA players started to get tested positive, we had a pretty good idea this was going to happen. Heritage Classic was just, you know what, uh, kudos to the to the people in Saskatchewan, uh, the people that got Taylor Field, uh, actually it's Mosaic Stadium now, I'm going back to, to the, the days when it was still Taylor Field. Mosaic Stadium now, uh, the building was pristine. You couldn't have asked for a better evening. The weather was perfect. We had a few snow flurries, wasn't that cold. Uh, and the event was absolutely terrific. Um, I, I just don't know if you could have asked for anything better other than, uh, you know, uh, some players getting getting banged up a little bit. Uh, Mason Appleton, you know, hurt his ankle playing football the day before uh, from a Jet standpoint. But uh, no, the, the, the game was good. Uh, they did a great job with the facility. Uh, it was very exciting. Yes, we were a long ways away to call the game, but that was secondary. Uh, the fans had an absolutely uh, terrific time. Again, I spent a lot of time in Saskatoon, uh, so I knew a lot of people that came down to that game, and, and everybody I talked to simply had had a great time, and uh, everybody involved with that from the National Hockey League all the way down to the people of Saskatchewan deserve uh, a big pat on the back. Um, do you, so you talked about uh, the Heritage Classic like we are on. Uh, do you ever think that the NHL would explore um, neutral sites? For league games? Yeah, for Winter Classic, Heritage Classic, outdoor games. Yeah, I, th- I think anything, anything's on the table. I, I really think anything is on the table here. Again, it goes back to what we talked about before, growing the game. I think anytime you can uh, you can bring the game to to different fans, uh, I think that's terrific. And uh, I mean, there's there's talk of going overseas. Some of this is going to get put on hold here a little bit until we get all this cleared up. Next season, whenever this season finishes, next season's going to be interesting. Is it going to be a shorter season? Uh, they don't want it to affect the following year. So those things are all going to come into play. I think a lot of things are on the table right now. Again, they may get pulled back a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, I, I really think that uh, – I mean, we've seen some of this. Preseason games are played in some smaller centers and uh, and along those lines. And, and uh, fans get an opportunity to come to NHL rinks. But at the same time, if you get the opportunity, as, as uh, the National Hockey League does, to take your game to, to other places, I think that's all on the table. Uh, now moving on, uh, you know you don't go to Philly much since they're in the Eastern Conference. Uh, but when you have, do you do you have any encounters with Gritty? No, not really. You know, I'm uh, he's, he's become quite the uh, celebrity, uh, and you know I I don't know. I guess uh, Big Bird and some of the other mascots from uh, from previous years that have had such an impact. Uh, I mean, hockey stayed away from from mascots and uh, and those sorts of things. We'd go to the World Championship and they'd have cheerleaders there, which was totally unique for for hockey. Uh, and hockey for the longest time stayed away from mascots. And now all of a sudden, you know, years back they got into it. And and uh, every once in a while you come up with one that uh, basically knocks it out of the park. 
And uh, Grady basically has done that. And uh, you're right, we don't get to Philadelphia all that often, but uh, uh, it's, it's, it's back to the way hockey has evolved. It's no longer just uh, what's happening on the ice. And as I said before, I'm still a bit of a traditionalist. Uh, I watch the game for what the game is, but I totally understand that that's not the way it is anymore. There's a whole bunch surrounding this game that needs to be talked about, needs to be promoted, and, and that's one of it. So uh, credit to NHL teams who have who have gone that route. They all have, and uh, where it becomes, and I guess he scares some children as well. Greedy does, but uh, I think anytime you have appearances by players, uh, especially when you're going to schools, some of those some of those students and some of those children are as interested in the mascot as they are in some of the players. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when the NHL does come back, uh, how are you going to adjust to staying two feet away and no fans in the stands? Well, that's going to be different. Uh, I mean, we're probably not going to have the player contact that uh, that we did before. Uh, we've already really kind of been warned about that, that uh, we won't have our coaches meeting uh, that we normally do. Uh, we won't have the access to the players. We, we won't be allowed inside the dressing room, uh, I don't think. Uh, then the question becomes, are we going to be on site? Uh, there's still this debate going on that uh, we may be calling games off monitor and not be with the team at all. Uh, and then others feel that, no, they will allow broadcasters to, to be on site, but you'll be in the press box in your space. And then when you're done your games, you'll simply do what everybody else does, go back to your hotel and then isolate and self-distance and and, uh, and everything else that comes along with it. Uh, the no fans in the building is going to be the, I think the biggest thing to get used to. And, and uh, not just the noise, but just the fact that the seats are gonna be empty. I mean, I've done some games at the World Championship where there hasn't been a lot of fans. You're doing a, a noon game between two teams that uh, aren't, aren't the host city or anything along those lines. So you maybe have 500, 600 people in the building that have traveled to follow their teams. So I've done games where the seats have basically uh, not had a lot of people in them. And that, that takes a bit of getting used to. But uh, what's going to be the biggest thing is you'll hear that you'll, I think you'll hear the players a lot more. And they may hear the broadcasters too. Uh, but I do think we'll hear the players a lot more than uh, and the coaches barking, uh, whether it be at players or whether it be at referees. I think we'll hear a lot more of that than we normally would. Now, we pick up, when you do a broadcast, you have microphones situated around the around the ice surface, so you do pick things up. But I do think we'll hear more of that uh, than we normally would. Would you say that a good idea would be to, like if you're going to interview a player or a coach, another idea would be to have them on a headset down near the locker room and you know you just ask the questions in the press box. Yeah, but then what do you do with the headset when the next player comes? You know, that's one. Oh, that's a good question, yeah. You know, so now you're, and, and that's been discussed. No, it's a good question, Michael, and that's been discussed. Uh, you know, so so what do you do? Do you, you know, do you, I mean, they, they do as best they can on short notice to disinfect those, the, the microphones and the headsets anyway, but you're still having more contact. Somebody's going to have to put that headset or hand that hands, uh, headset to the player. Or maybe it's just sitting there, but you have more people handling. And we may have that. That may be what they end up doing. Uh, that may very well be the case, that uh, that we still have those those uh, after-period and post-game interviews uh, with headsets. But uh, 
it's been discussed and that is the concern. I think the fewer people that you have handling equipment, uh, the better. But uh, that spacing on the bench, uh, spacing in the dressing room, uh, all that is the little details that, that once they announce, and I expect something over the next few days, once they announce something, uh, those will be all the questions that will follow after that. From, our, from, from my standpoint, number one question is going to be, are we going to be on site or are we going to be somewhere in a studio calling games off monitor? Uh, so to me, that's uh, that would be the biggest question that I would have. Now, final question here. Uh, do you have any advice for aspiring journalists? You know what? It's, it's become so much tougher now. Uh, and, I, and I feel for... For the young, they have to work way harder than than what I did. Uh, I mean, the opportunities that that uh, were available when I was starting in this business. Uh, every small town had its own newspaper. Every small town had its own radio station. Uh, you were allowed to go there, allowed to make mistakes. Your readers and your listeners understood that you were young. You were learning. And, and you made mistakes, they accepted those, and, and away you went from there uh, to the next market, to the next market. So there's two sides to that. Number one, uh, on the positive side is we're seeing bigger markets hire students right out of school. So from that end of it, it's a bit easier. But the opportunities aren't as numerous as they were back then. And uh, I think that's the, that's the challenge now. Uh, stay with it. But at the same time, understand that the opportunity may not come. Don't get discouraged. You may have to, to change paths a little bit, uh, but stay with it. But give it, give it an opportunity. Uh, understand that you may have to, to go to a smaller center to start. If you don't get the opportunity to start in a big center, be prepared to go where the job is. And that might be the best. Uh, I mean, everybody can say work hard and, and all the other stuff, but that would be Go where the opportunity is. Be prepared to do that uh, would maybe be the advice that I would give because I've done that. I went where the opportunity was and it's worked out very good for me. But again, I understand that uh, for people like yourselves and, and all the youngsters coming up now, the opportunities that, that we had just uh, maybe simply aren't there. And yet there's more coverage of live events. There's more coverage. You got more sports, net, sports channels now. So uh, there still is an opportunity there. All right, well, that'll do it for episode 11 of the podcast. I would like to thank Winnipeg Jets play-by-play -play Dennis Bayek for joining me again. Michael, thank you. Good luck to you.